This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Today, as BC's pilot project to decriminalize possession of small amounts of hard drugs begins, the latest overdose numbers are showing the situation is not improving. On average, six people died every day last year from toxic drugs. And as Kamal Kuramali reports, overdose is now second only to cancer as a top cause of premature death. It's been almost seven years since the declaration of a public health emergency and toxic drugs are still killing multiple people every day. To their friends and their colleagues and their communities and their loved ones, my heart goes out to you and I'm so sorry that we're continuing to fail. In 2022, the province recorded 2,272 deaths as a result of illicit drug toxicity, the second highest number ever in a calendar year, just shy of the record 2,306 deaths in 2021. Data indicates fentanyl was detected in 82% of those deaths. Some sought opioids. Others believed they had purchased stimulants and died unaware that what they purchased on the illicit market contained fentanyl. These deaths were preventable and these lives mattered. The three regions with the highest deaths, Vancouver topped the list with 562 deaths, Surrey next with 232, and the greater Victoria region experienced 157 deaths. Combined account for 42% of all toxic drug-related deaths in the province. The highest number of fatalities in a local health area, Vancouver Centre North, which includes the downtown east side. More than 300 deaths occurred there, but that's only 14% of all deaths across the province. When it comes to death rates, as a percentage of population, northern health is the highest with nearly 60 fatalities per 100,000 people, compared to Vancouver Coastal Health, 50 deaths per 100,000. Only one of those deaths was at an overdose prevention site, but there's still plenty of data missing. Just ask the doctors who see the crisis firsthand. Many of those stories aren't reflected here today. I hear of, of blackouts, of assaults, seizures, infections, non-fatal overdoses, and so many more consequences that we're not seeing in this report today. As the system continues to buckle, under the pressure of overdose patients. Kamel Karamali, Global News. And there is one population hit harder than any other in this province, and that is BC's indigenous uh, uh, population. And that uh, brings us to Keith Baldry, who joins us now with some staggering statistics from the First Nations Health Authority, uh, Health Authority today, Keith. 
Yes, as you saw in Camel's story, every time the coroner releases this monthly or annual report, it breaks down the deaths by age, gender, and geography. Tells the story, it's everywhere across BC, as Camel pointed out, not just the downtown east side. But as you mentioned, Chris, the Indigenous community, today we got some new numbers hit particularly hard. For example, in BC, less than 4% of the population is Indigenous, yet 15% of all toxic drug deaths are among that Indigenous population. And particularly hit hard are Indigenous women. That's a statistic elicited further by Dr. Nell Weeman of the First Nations Health Authority today, who provided even more alarming statistics when it comes to Indigenous women dying from toxic drugs. First Nations people are dying at over five times the rate of other BC residents. Also in the First Nations data, First Nations women are disproportionately impacted. During the first half of 2022, First Nations women died at 8.8 .8 times the rate of other BC female residents. So obviously a crisis. Dr. Weeman today said that First Nations South authorities establishing more treatment centers, spending more resources on harm reduction, and working with elders and knowledge keepers, and working with and using First Nations culture and history to try to get the message through to people to stop using illicit drugs because of the danger they pose, particularly in Indigenous population. A terrible crisis within a crisis, Keith. Thanks mm -hmm. very much for that. Well, treatment is one of the pillars of the drug strategy, but those trying to access programs for themselves or their loved ones say it can be difficult and frustrating with long wait lists, complicated intake systems, and in some cases, crushing costs. Kylie Stanton reports. Everything changed. There are treatment spaces available here at the Last Door Recovery Centre, but... Accessing them is complicated, difficult, Depends on where you live. You're going to have to wait in line unless you have a credit card. As part of the province's three-year test of the decriminalization of small amounts of opioids, cocaine, amphetamines and ecstasy, instead of making arrests, officers will hand out cards with information on health services. The big question that no one's asking is, how are they going to refer? Who are they going to refer to? The province is loosely following what's known as the Portuguese model, where drugs have been decriminalized for more than 20 years. In that time, it's not only proven to be effective, but continues to expand. When they initiated their model, they had 26 therapeutic communities. They now have 52. But if that's BC's goal, advocates say there is a long way to go. I think there needs to be marked expansion of the number of therapeutic communities to the point at which treatment on demand is available. As it stands, publicly funded treatment programs have long wait lists and complicated intake rules, while the fees for private programs are beyond reach for many families. And officials admit the existing data doesn't provide a clear picture of the outcomes. We can't evaluate that. We don't have access to what is effective and what isn't effective, and that's a, a, a really challenging gap. We do need better data and better following um, of individuals through the system because th that is what we need by, by building an integrated system of care. The hope is decriminalizing drugs will help reduce the stigma around substance abuse, and in turn, those who need help will feel more comfortable seeking it out. But as one former drug user will tell you, hope only goes so far. You know, I'm going to say it. It's pretty irresponsible to create such a, a change in our in our the way we live here in British Columbia without thinking about the bigger picture. Kylie Stanton, Global News.
The inquest into the suicide of a young Vancouver police officer has been turned over to the jury now for deliberation. Ramina Dea recaps the key evidence so far in the death of Constable Nicole Chan and a warning some of the details might not be suitable for everyone. Four years after VPD Constable Nicole Chan was found hanging from her bedroom door on January 27, 2019, it appears little has changed. The proud Vancouver police officer was 30 years old when she took her life. I believe there's a systemic issue within the VPD that needs to be changed because I don't want this to happen to another family. During the public inquest, the jury heard evidence Chan felt coerced into having sex with her superior, HR Sergeant Dave Van Patten, because he was threatening to release photos of her genitals. Chan devastated no criminal charges were laid. Van Patten was ultimately fired after a police act investigation. He denied all allegations. Chan's other superior, Sergeant Greg McCullough, was also investigated under the police act for having an inappropriate relationship with Chan given his position. He was suspended for 15 days and later resigned. What the Chan family hopes is that everybody understands that Nicole tried her best and she simply didn't have, for reasons that we may not never fully understand, she just simply didn't have the proper resources to help get her to that point where she got to see the full implications of her complaint and her allegations. The night before Chan took her life, she was threatening to kill herself with a dog leash, and she was in possession of a large kitchen knife and scissors, testified her boyfriend, who, along with police officers and paramedics, had concerns about Chan being discharged from hospital given her history of suicide attempts. Psychiatrist Dr. Kiran Sayaparaju told the inquest jury he did not have all the information, and Chan told him she did not try to kill herself. He testified he could not legally hold her against her will. What we've seen in Nicole's case is that there was a complete breakdown of uh, consistent and complete information. There certainly was information. The difficulty is, as I've now heard from all of these different witnesses throughout the uh, course of this inquest, that unfortunately the information that ultimately got to the assessing psychiatrist was not complete. A coroner's inquest is not a criminal proceeding. There's no guilty verdict. The goal is to prevent a similar death in the future. The jury is expected to hand down its recommendations on Wednesday. It's important to note those recommendations will not be binding. Romina Dea, Global News. Well, the overnight snowfall forecast, but the accumulation seemed to surprise a few people across Metro Vancouver. Cars littered ditches and many vehicles spun out on roadways. Catherine Urquhart now with how people coped with the latest blast of winter. On a slick hill in Coquitlam, a frightening scene as a bus driver loses control. After slamming into another vehicle, the driver appears to regain control. No word on injuries. Across Metro Vancouver, it was a morning commute many had not anticipated. The snowfall in Langley and other areas more than expected. On Highway 1, wet and slippery conditions resulted in long delays. A few ended up in the ditch and there were countless collisions and fender benders. Coquitlam's Westwood Plateau was also blanketed. This motorist was forced to back down a hill after their car's wheels started spinning. 
A van lost control and crashed into a power pole, snapping it. We don't expect that there's a snowing this morning. <laughs> no. Yeah. Nobody expected anything like that. Mother Nature does what she does. Some wondered if enough was done to clear major arteries. Main Road, the maintenance company in charge of clearing provincial highways in Metro Vancouver, wouldn't say how many crews were dispatched. To my knowledge, there was a full deployment of all plowing, uh, sanding uh, equipment, fully mobilized. Scraping and shoveling was also part of many a morning chore. I don't mind it at all. I'm from Ontario. I came out in 82 and uh, used to it. So, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed the snow. It's not cold. It's not heavy, easy to shovel. Tuesday afternoon, Main Road announced its snow and ice program had been deployed for the Port Man and Alex Fraser bridges, meaning intermittent lane closures. This latest blast of snow, a reminder it's still winter. Spring almost seven weeks away. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Excuse me. All right, let's bring in our senior meteorologist, Christy Gordon now choking a little bit thinking of the forecast to come Christy uh, more snow headed our way yeah, so uh, what we have is another BAM that's set to push in across the region. Let's have a quick look at the uh, radar imagery. We're seeing moisture across Vancouver Island starting to make its way across the Strait of Georgia at this time. Now, I had a look at the tower cams around sort of Vancouver Island. There certainly is areas like Campbell River down towards Courtney that are seeing some wet snow. But for the most part, the roads just look wet. So we are expecting that moisture to shift in here. We are expecting it to be as snow, but it will be a mix of rain and snow as we continue continue through the evening hours we'll be hovering between about one or two degrees so it really depends on your location certainly higher elevations have still a good uh, ch chance of snowfall and I wanted to mention this snowfall could impact the early morning commute but I think by about 7 a.m. it will begin to ease off okay back to you Kate you've been warned commuters for tomorrow morning Christy thank mm -hmm. you the effort to bring the Granville Strip back to its former glory. The city of Vancouver vote that could be the start of something special. But then again, we've said the same thing many times before. So what does this council plan to do differently? That's next on the NewsHour. I, my, my mind was blown. A young hockey player does a favor for his idol, Connor Bedard. And the reward was more than he could have imagined. That's coming up later. Also tonight, the last 747. Thousands show up for the end of an era in aviation. Right now, though, the city of Vancouver is embarking on yet another effort to transform the fading Granville Street Entertainment District. City Council says it's determined to return the area to its former glory. But as Grace Key reports, it won't happen quickly. The Granville Entertainment District is troubled with homelessness, vacant storefronts, lack of daytime activity and safety concerns. Now Vancouver City Council has unanimously approved an 18-month plan that looks into revitalizing the area, something previous councils have tried to do. It's bigger, it's bolder. I think council sent a very clear signal today uh, to staff that we are 100% we are behind them uh, in taking bolder action and moving forward. It focuses on an area between Robson and Drake. Entertainment, live performances, dining, tourism, retail and office space and limited rental housing in certain locations are being explored. 
Like many businesses in the area, the dime on Granville says homelessness and drug use is a challenge. When you come up and there's uh, someone who's, you know, smoking crack and looking sketchy in front of your restaurant, it definitely doesn't give you an inviting feel. The area has the highest concentration of SROs outside of the downtown east side. An arts and culture destination will be first and foremost moving forward. So the plan for SROs across the city, not just in the Granville district, um, is that they be replaced over time with self-contained units and provide people with more dignified housing. The plan will also explore a possible vehicle-free area, public space options, address the current hotel shortage, and quick start projects that can bring life into the area. I think the future is bright. Uh, I'm really excited about the opportunity as well to redevelop a brand new public space for the city of Vancouver. We don't have a lot of dedicated pedestrian-only public space. For businesses, change can't come soon enough. I think it would be good to have a bit of a facelift on the whole area and it would definitely make it a little easier to get people in. A final council report is expected sometime in the summer of 2024. Grace Key, Global News. Vancouver City Council has also approved spending more than $100,000 to reduce the risk of fires in single-room occupancy buildings. Firefighters responded to 223 fires in SROs last year, including a fire in the Winters Building that killed two people. 230 people have had to leave their homes forever as the older buildings are condemned and torn down. The city grant will fund fire safety programs at 18 buildings, which includes creating evacuation maps and distributing fire safety materials in several languages. Yeah, we've seen a continued increase in fires in SROs from 2016 uh, to last year was a 114% increase in fires. So it's across the board. I think um, the really big point, and I think what we, we stressed at Council today, is that these are 100-year-old buildings. They're very challenging, small 10 by 10 rooms, shared bathrooms and kitchens. And ultimately what we need to do is work with senior governments to replace the stock with safe, dignified and affordable housing. The year-long pilot program will be rolled out in three phases. City staff will report back to council with its findings. The Vancouver School Board has voted unanimously to rename Lord Roberts Elementary. The school in the West End was named after Frederick Slay Roberts, who led British forces in the Second Boer War in South Africa. The school's parent advisory council described Roberts as a man who ran concentration camps, occupied the lands of Indigenous people, and burned down farms. The board will now strike a committee to look into potential new names. Parents are suggesting the name West End Elementary. Coming up, Whistler helps one of its own injured in an accident. It's hard for me to sometimes, you know, accept um, the generosity from everybody. A mountain of support for Wayne Wiltsey that includes auctioning off a gondola. That's later. And a desperate need for dog fosters. Why the BCSPCA is looking for people with room in their home and in their hearts. Over at the Patello Bridge, you're in fine shape for either direction, no delays. Through a charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Autogloss, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. In the Global Traffic Center, I'm Jennifer Lee. Vancouver police say they'll be having a chat with the registered owner of a car that ended up in Stanley Park, but nowhere near a parking space. Take a look. Officers spotted the BMW 
about 90 meters from the parking lot for the hollow tree off in the grass. It's not clear how the car got there, but police say the driver didn't stick around to explain the predicament. The car has been towed and police have issued two tickets, one for driving without due care and attention and another for prohibited parking in the park. The BCSPCA says there is an immediate need for dog fosters in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley. More than 80 dogs have come into the SPCA's care just this month, and the society says in order to take more animals in, they need people to help foster some of the dogs. Fosters are required to have access to a car to transport the animals to veterinary appointments, but the SPCA will pay for any medical care and provide training, supplies and food. Friends of a Whistler man are coming together to show support for someone they say has given so much to the community and now needs a little help himself. Wayne Wiltsey suffered life-altering injuries in a terrible crash last year. And as Julie Nolan reports, the community's support has been overwhelming. A refurbished original Creekside gondola makes its unlikely stop at a favorite watering hole in Whistler. Donated as part of a silent auction here for a man whose love and compassion for his community is evident. Well, we're here today because life changes so quickly sometimes. One year ago, Wayne Wiltsey was the lift maintenance director here at Whistler Blackcomb, always taking care of the ski community. We've gone and on all similar types. Then last trains. February, life changed in an instant. Wiltsey was left with catastrophic injuries from a serious car crash, now paralyzed. For everybody to turn around and step back and support me um, when I'm, you know, in a situation that's difficult has been great. Known for his mentorship, volunteerism and leadership, friends are rallying around Wiltsey as he now requires major modifications to his home to become wheelchair accessible. It's really great to see how the whole Sea to Sky community has pulled together and, and, and supported him in many different ways. He's Dearly missed every single day at work right now and anything that we can do as a team to support Wayne and his family is it's, it's such a great cause. Aside from a fundraiser Tuesday evening, a trust fund of more than $100,000 has been set up to help Wiltsey and his family with donations from across North America. We've had contributions from $20 all the way up to $10,000. Wiltsey's good deeds aren't done. He also needs a special van to get around with plans to return to work try to become as independent as, as I possibly can and, and not be such a burden, um, you know, on those around me. As he fights for that independence, the community is lifting him up where they can. You can't help everybody, but everybody can help somebody, and a lot of people have chosen to be able to help Wayne. Julie Nolan, Global News. And Pat Bell, who uh, was our videographer on that story, tells us that Wayne and his family and friends are watching the news hour right now and just saw that story from their hotel room in Whistler before, the, before they go to the fundraiser tonight. Mm -hmm. So um, just so great to see the community supporting Wayne. And I hear he wants to get back to work as soon as possible. Absolutely true. And we wish you the very best of luck in your recovery, Wayne. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Now, improving standards in long-term care homes, the new recommendations and how BC stacks up. That's coming up next on the News Hour. And later in Health Matters, the high-tech table that's bringing some magic back to people dealing with dementia.
Good evening to you. Look at the Portman Bridge. Pretty quiet for eastbound traffic on Highway 1, heading through those through lanes towards Surrey or through those Surrey exit lanes. We have no delays. Through a charitable partnership between Kermat Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermat Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. In the Global Traffic Center, I'm Jennifer Lee. A new national report is hoping to protect some of our most vulnerable citizens by raising the standards in long-term care. The Health Standard Organization released a list of recommendations aimed at making care homes feel more like real homes. Richard Zussman has more. Long-term solutions for long-term care. These are the most comprehensive standards that have ever been created ever in Canada. The Health Standards Organization releasing updated standards for long-term care homes, including all residents receiving four hours of daily direct care. BC is now at 3.36 hours a standard, increasing the pay for workers and upgrading facilities to include more single rooms. BC right now has a patchwork approach with about 20% of homes uncredited and therefore not bound to standards. I think in BC, the example of Quebec, Quebec has said this is the national standard uh, and they legislate their homes to all be accredited against the standard and to publicly report their findings as well. The pandemic exposed significant flaws in long-term care. More than 80% of Canada's recorded COVID deaths happened in LTC, the highest of any OECD nation, with more than 17,000 people dying in care. You can have the best standards in the world, and arguably these may be the best standards in the world, but they're meaningless if they are not enforced. On the staffing issue, British Columbia has made significant changes, including wage levelling and improving both training and retention. BC has gone absolutely in the direction of these standards and, uh, and um, we're of course prepared to review this and do more if that's required. 90% of care homes in the province are provincially supported, but there are challenges around the age of some of these facilities. They don't have proper ventilation and in some cases not enough single rooms. There have been major announcements coming from interior health for new spaces, but nothing yet for Metro Vancouver and in Victoria. These are going to take years to build and land acquisition is going to be expensive. So unless we get started now, we're not going to have these uh, spots ready in time for when they're needed. And with an aging population, that need is just going to keep growing, putting even more pressure on ensuring these standards are met. Richard Zosman, Global News, Victoria. The idea of a gaming console might conjure up images of children or young adults playing in front of a screen. Beat Saber? or Fortnite anyone, but that technology has a use for older people too. As Karen Lieberman shows us, a unique new gaming concept called Tovertuffle is proving very effective at countering the effects of dementia. There's one right here, Nancy. As images flash before their eyes, projected from above, these patients are playing with a high-tech gaming system. Well, the Tovertafel is meant to help activate residents and stimulate them um, in a very dignified way, so for them to take the initiative on their own. We're almost there. Tovertafel, which means magic table in Dutch, is an innovative system from the Netherlands, meant to provide entertainment but also engagement, designed specifically for people in mid to late stages of dementia. So when we think about uh, physical rehabilitation, whether it's passive exercises, stimulating our mind a little bit differently than maybe the day-to-day -day activities we partake in, and socialization. Fern Miller is staying at North York General Hospital's reactivation center while she waits for the next step in her care journey. That's a good face you got. 
The Tover Tuffle, she says, has helped her pass the time in a productive way. You use your arms, your hands, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. Very good. Where technology can sometimes be a barrier, here, and for these patients, it's proving useful. It helps with memory stimulation, cognitive stimulation, promotes social interaction, and also reduces uh, apathy and tense behavior. From a nostalgic nod to amusement park experiences. Do you want to tap that for me, Nancy? So we see something forming on top here. To a puzzle displaying recognizable places from around the world. The projector would shine down on the table, and and uh, if you hit the table, it would just go into pieces. This interactive console is a therapeutic tool bringing the magic back into the lives of people living with dementia. Karen Lieberman, Global News. Coming up, a once-in-a-lifetime experience worth waiting for. An hour in, Mom was like, can we just go home? And I was like, no, we're not. <laughs> How a young hockey player made a great save for his idol, Connor Bedard. And coming up later in sports, the two players tied to Bo Horvat forever. What they say about the trade that makes them Canucks. Russia continues its widespread attack in Ukraine. Global News is on the ground in Kherson. You can hear the steady drumbeat of artillery here behind me. This city has been under constant shelling. Tomorrow on Global National. There is one guest that's going to bring the house down, and that is the guest of honor, the queen of the skies. An historic moment attended by thousands in Everett, Washington at the giant Boeing factory. It's where the first Boeing 747 rolled off the floor more than half a century ago, changing aviation forever. Bigger, heavier, and able to fly farther than any plane before it. Today, though, in the same factory, the last 747 was delivered to a cargo airline where it will serve at least the next three decades. Today we celebrate not necessarily an ending, but, but a beginning as well. The beginning of another exciting chapter driven by the mighty queen of the skies. And I will say she is the biggest, baddest commercial aircraft that's flying out there. The 747 has a long history in Canada. It first visited YVR in 1971, and it served with Air Canada, Canadian Airlines, and even Ward Air before it was withdrawn in 2003. Two 747s still fly in Quebec, where they are used to test new engines, and there are many others still in service around the world. All right, let's bring Christy back with a look at that forecast, and a reminder, winter is not over yet. That's right. It looks like the moisture that's put it, pushing in is starting to warm things up a little bit. So for the most part across Vancouver Island right now, we're seeing just rain or maybe just a slushy mix. That's about it. Here's a look at it just starting to shift into Metro Vancouver and you can see that we're at about two degrees. Nonetheless, there's a little bit of white there and that's indicating that we could be at that boundary level. So higher elevations, areas away from the water still anticipate snowfall as we head into the evening hours and overnight. I'm not expecting this to ease until the early 
early morning hours tomorrow. Here's a quick look at that timeline and temperatures could drop to one degree. So a transition to snow is certainly possible across the region. By about 9 a.m. is when we're expecting it to warm up to three degrees, but there still is the potential for an impact on the early morning commute. But I think as we head throughout the morning hours, we'll start to see things ease off. So certainly when the kids are headed to school, I wanted to quickly show you this. We're rounding out uh, January. Of course, we haven't uh, totally finished the day, so this is just so far, but it does include the snowfall we saw this morning, two centimeters, and that was the only snowfall we saw all of January. Typically, we'd have 11 centimeters of snow. We were below average in terms of rainfall, but we were above average, as you likely know. It was very mild this January indeed. Now, we still have warnings in place for the central interior caribou region with up to 40 centimeters of snow expected by the overnight hours on Wednesday. So we're not done with this yet. We at least another 24 hours of this snowfall. And you can see that here from the future cast. So widespread snow, it is not going to be great to travel on Highway 16 as well as Highway 97 areas north of uh, Quinell. So that's the forecast. Heavy snow from Fort St. John right down and through the Caribou. Lighter snow across the southern interior, but the West Columbia region will see still significant snow. Some snowfall still possible across Vancouver Island away from the water, but a transition to rain and drier by the latter part of the day. For our region, it's only a 40% chance of showers tomorrow. So it's not too bad in terms of precipitation uh, tomorrow and especially some sunshine Thursday before the rain shifts back in on Friday. Friday. Tonight's central windows weather window comes, comes to you from the Fairmont Hot Springs area, which, by the way, I think this is the first weather window I've had from this area, so I'm quite excited. And it's a shot of the hoodoos in the, uh, um, in the beautiful winter scene, as you can see here. So, Jeff, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Love that part of the province. Thanks a lot, Christy. Well, North Vancouver's Connor Bedard has brought fans to their feet across the country. But this past week, the world's top hockey prospect desperately needed an assist. Bedard apparently forgot his socks during a visit to Saskatchewan. And Andrew Benson has the story of how a minor hockey player stepped in to save the day. This is Dylan Serdashny. And like a lot of other 11-year-old hockey players in Saskatchewan, his favourite player is none other than... Connor Bedard. So it was an exciting day for Dylan when Bedard himself needed an assist. After getting ready for a private training session, Bedard realized he had no socks. It was then Dylan who came in with a quick save, giving Bedard his own pair of socks for the practice. I said to Dylan after he went on the ice, and I'm like, look Dylan, even superstars forget their equipment too. After watching the private workout, Dylan was treated to a lifetime of memories from his favourite player. We waited two hours, an hour in, mom was like, can we just go home? And I was like, no, we're not. And then after, he was like, here's your socks back, I can sign them. And he was like, oh yeah, as well, have my stick. That night when they got home, Dylan fell asleep with Bedard's stick tucked in beside him. I was, I didn't, I couldn't speak. Like, I, my, my mind was blown. And while Dylan refused to wear the Bedard socks at his latest hockey game, he is hoping the Bedard skill rubs off on him and his teammates. All my teammates said, um, like, if you use those socks, you can have, like, Connor Bedard's powers. Dylan says he will never wear the socks or use the stick, but he had to take the chance to show his teammates in the locker room after the game. Andrew Benson, Global News. I missed it. Did, did he wash the socks? <laughs> no. Don't. He hasn't worn them yet, but they, give, they might give him superpowers. You never know. <sighs> if you good. wash them. The superpowers are gone. Right. That's right. Okay. Just keep them tucked away somewhere. Exactly. All right. Hello, Squire. Hello. Um, and hello to you. Uh, well, since he's now...
the Vancouver Canucks number one prospect. We thought we ought to talk to oh. Raw too. Wow. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah, yeah, I think the biggest thing is my skating. I, I think it's improved this year, but I still really wanted to get better, I think. Actually, Atu Ratu scored against the Canucks last month, but he starts his Canucks career in Abbotsford. All right, also I'm tonight. Probably about 30 varieties of mushrooms. How Brian Thomas overcame addiction, started a business, and now has chefs clamoring for his crop. Squires here with sports and yes. uh, yeah, learning a little bit more about the prospects that we've acquired. Well, the main prospect, of course, is Atu Ratu. When the uh, Vancouver Canucks were taking calls from potential Bo Horvat suitors, the Canucks told everyone we want a first-round draft pick. We would like a young prospect as well. And clearly none of the Stanley Cup contenders came up with that kind of bounty. It was the Islanders who were fighting for a playoff spot they were the team that gave Vancouver what they wanted, along with veteran Anthony Beauvillier. Now, Atu Ratu is the main prospect. He's a 20-year-old center. He scored twice in 12 NHL games this season. One of those goals, as we showed you before the break, was against the Canucks at Rogers Arena. He has played most of the season with the Islanders farm team in Bridgeport. He will start with the Canucks farm team in Abbotsford, which is okay with him since he knows there are still things he has to work on. Yeah, I think for me, I um, obviously want to want to work on my all around game. I think it's 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 good, but I definitely it definitely has to be better in in order to be a be a winning player. But I, yeah, I think the biggest thing is my skating. I I think it's improved this year, but I still really wanted to get better. I think it's such a fast league that uh you know you gotta you gotta be able to move your feet and um, yeah that's that's what I work what I work on. Anthony Beauvillier will start in Vancouver. He's a winger who early in his career showed promise as a 20-goal scorer, but he has dropped off in recent seasons. He still thinks, so. he has an NHL scoring touch, and it might re-emerge on the Canucks because Vancouver does score goals, at least more than the Islanders have this season. Uh, you know, it's had some good uh, years to start and kind of slowed down the last uh, two seasons, but um, I feel like my, uh, my numbers doesn't really, they don't really speak for the way I've been playing this year. Just had uh, a lot of opportunities and just didn't really could find the back of the net, I would say. But um, uh, very excited to find my game uh, again in Vancouver and very excited to join this, uh, this group, like I said. And it won't be very long before the Vancouver Canucks see Bo Horvat again because when they come out of their midseason break, Vancouver goes on a four-game Eastern road trip and that will include a game against the Islanders in New York on February 9th. Without Horvat, the Canucks are obviously a weaker team. And they may weaken themselves further with other possible trades. There are rumors flying around the NHL. Thatcher Demko is being sought after by a number of teams. But because Vancouver actually has one of the easier schedules from here until the end of the season based on win percentage of the remaining opponents, weakening the Canucks roster by trading for prospects and picks, which is mainly what they did yesterday, is the right thing to do, given Connor Bedard and the highly touted draft class. Now, tonight, the Canucks... We're watching this game. Two teams that are right behind them in the uh, NHL draft lottery. And this kid, Raphael Harvey-Pinard, a scoring sensation in Montreal of late. Seven games in the NHL this season. He has five goals. That's Tim Stutzla making it 4-3 Ottawa in the third period. I think the Canucks would like to see, well, if you're wanting the Canucks to get closer 
to the Connor Bedard Derby, or higher up, I should say, or a better percentage. You'd like to see Montreal win this game or at least get it to overtime. There's another goal by Harvey Bernard. That made it 4-4, Harvey Bernard's goal. But then just over a minute left, and it's Brady Kachuk scoring. And Ottawa wins it by the count of 5-4. The Vancouver Whitecaps have announced that veteran forward Tosant Ricketts is putting away his boots and shorts for a suit and tie. He's going to work in the uh, Whitecaps front office as a liaison for the club and players. That's been the plan for a while, but it wasn't made official until now. And even though he was mostly a sub that came on during the second half with the Vancouver Whitecaps, his veteran savvy helped younger players on the Caps, and he also could add a jolt to Vancouver's attack late in games. He leaves the pitch at the age of 35 while he was with Vancouver. He scored seven times in 65 games, mainly, as we said, coming on as a sub. Started only 13 times for the Whitecaps. Vancouver was the last stop of a very good career. He played for clubs in eight different countries, won an MLS Cup in 2017 with TFC. He also wore the Canadian sweater for a number of years. He played 61 games for Canada's national team and scored 17, inter or make that 17 goals in international games. Well, these are certainly... Certainly dark times for any sports franchise the Aquilini family owns. We already know what the Canucks have gone through, but the Vancouver Warriors lacrosse team are actually worse than the Canucks. They are 1-6 right now, and today they mimicked the hockey team by trading away one of their best players. In fact, I think this was their best player, Mitch Jones. He's going to Philadelphia for a first-round pick, a second-round pick, and a defenseman named Steph Charbonneau. Mitch Jones is from Delta. He was the Warriors' leading point-getter so far this season, number one in assists, two in goals. Been with the Warriors since 2018, also won a Minto Cup and a Man Cup. Holds two Canadian lacrosse records, most points in a Minto Cup final game and most points in a Man Cup series. And it looks like the Denver Broncos are making former Saints boss Sean Payton their new head coach, but they've had to trade for him. So New Orleans gets a first, a second, and a third-round draft pick. Picking up Russell Wilson and now getting a new head coach for him has become very expensive for the Broncos. Peyton is also expected to get a huge salary to coach Denver as well. There you go. All right. That's all I got. That yeah. was plenty. That was a lot. It was a ton. But I'm done. Thanks, Squire. Up next, how a BC man's new business has mushroomed into a wild success. The huge obstacles he overcame to get it there. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you by JM Media. Visit jmmedia.ca. Jordan Armstrong is here now with a preview of what they've got coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan. Chris, BC's most famous nude beach needs more police patrols. So says the local government body responsible for maintaining Wreck Beach. A staff report going before the Metro Vancouver Regional Parks Committee tomorrow states that visits to the beach west of UBC are up 44% in five years. And with that, they say, are more issues with crowd control, overdoses and beach fires. That story and any breaking news tonight on Global News at 11. Chris? Blurring included. All right, thanks. Just the bare facts. <laughs> oh, thanks, boy. Jordan. Are you guys done now? Yeah, we're done. Okay, thanks, Jordan. Well, we started tonight's news hour with the latest grim statistics of BC's toxic drug crisis. Now we want to end things on a more hopeful note. That's right, a man who has turned his life around, going from drug addict on the downtown east side 
To the toast of Vancouver's culinary world, Jay Durant has the story of BC's Mushroom King. Right now we got in stock, I've caught probably about 30 varieties of mushrooms from Shiitake. Less than a year after launch, Brian Thomas has big plans for Mica Farms and his top-of-the-line mushrooms. Ultimate goal is to be the gourmet mushroom king of uh, Canada, man. <laughs> Something like that. With the pink, I want to show you is that when you're cooking it, and the chefs love this, and uh, it just breaks off so beautifully. It's small steps first, though, for someone who's already come such a long way. Brian beat drug addiction after some very low moments as a young man. It was the West Hotel, Alleyway, Hastings in Maine. Uh, you know, it was my addiction took me to some really dark places. He tried so many times to get clean. You get up in the morning and say, I'm not going to use today, I'm not going to use today. And by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm using. But during an eight-month sentence in prison, he came up with a plan. It was time to be a dad to his young children. He turned his life around, became a mental health and addictions counselor, and received recognition for his work helping so many other people. When I was pretty hopeless, I was trying to find my way in the world, Brian offered me a place to stay. He showed me what meetings looked like, what it looked like to live clean. It never stops blowing me away what people can become when they stop you know, the, you know, being a slave to addiction. Hi, Ann. How are you? Now his new venture is creating a buzz with some local chefs. It's amazing. That's beautiful. All of these five kind of mushroom Brian have, it's, it's a combination of flavor. We have a whole bunch of different cultures, so I have them all labeled. A few months ago, after meeting a potential customer in Vancouver, Brian went back to that alley and the stoop where he used to shoot up placing some mushrooms as a token to show how far he's come. I can't believe the, the difference in my life. I feel like I've lived six lives. Like I, I just love what I'm doing. I'm on the right path, man. It means keep going. Don't stop. So we live the best life, and we take care of each other. And that just means everything. Jay Durant, Global News. Wow. Well, if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC that you want to share with all of us, just email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc.com at globalnews.ca. That is proof. You should never write anyone off. Mm -hmm. Very true. Mm -hmm. Well done. All right. Uh, final word on the weather, Christy. Yeah, so the moisture is starting to push in. It could be anything from rain to a mix of rain and snow to snow for higher elevations especially. So that's through the overnight period. Should ease through the morning commute. If you're up early, though, be prepared for a little bit of snow. More shoveling. I can take it. <laughs> not Thank that. No, not shoveling. Not, not shoveling? Okay, well, that's good no. to know. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have Bye. a good night, all. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.